Luke chapter 17. You know, guys, the hottest spots in hell are going to be reserved for those who mess with God's kids. You want to get me upset? Just mess with my kids. And the same is true with God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Sin is inevitable, but Jesus warned, sinner, beware. You'd be better off swimming in a concrete wetsuit designed by the Jewish mafia than having to answer to Jesus for messing with his kids. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, how many times? Seven times a day? And seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent? Hey, you shall forgive him. Guys, we need to be as generous with our forgiveness as God has been with his. Too often in serving God, we think that we deserve a pat on the back. It happens. But in chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus reminds us that a servant's job is to serve. Don't expect any special badges of honor for doing your duty. Verse 10 depicts a servant's attitude. Jesus says, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. On our way back from our recent mission trip to Haiti, we were sitting in the airport. And no joke, Pastor James reaches down and he picks up his Bible and he flips it open. And guess where it falls open? To this very passage. <laughs> hey, if you're ever going to feel like you've done God a favor, if you're ever going to feel like God owes you one, it's after you've spent six days in the Haitian bush trying to do a pastor's conference. Trust me. But God is faithful to keep our attitude straight. Hey, after all we've done, after all we could do, even a trip to Haiti, trust me, is the least that we can do after all he's done for us. Remember, obedience proves that we're thankful, never that we're worthy. As Jesus journeyed to Jerusalem... He entered a village, and there he healed ten lepers. They immediately, of course, race off to the priest to be pronounced clean and to begin their new lives. Only one of the ten men bothers to return to Jesus and to say thanks. That's when Jesus asked in verse 17, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Hey, today, millions the world over have been healed by Jesus. But you know, I think we can still hear him ask, Hey, didn't I heal John and Jim? Didn't I save Bill and Beverly? Didn't I come bring comfort to Andy and Ashley? But where are they now? Guys, are we among the nine who went off? Or are we one of those few who returned to Jesus to say thanks? Do you have an attitude of gratitude? You know, Jesus talked a lot about his kingdom. But the disciples thought that he meant an earthly, concrete, political kingdom. Jesus, though, surprised them with a new concept. He says in verse 20 of chapter 17, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, Oh, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God 
is within you. Guys, this is one of the most vital concepts for us to grasp in Scripture. The kingdom that Jesus establishes and that he's working on today doesn't sprawl across the land. Rather, it penetrates the hearts of men and women. You see, one day when King Jesus does return, he'll build a physical kingdom. But today, his kingdom isn't physical, it's spiritual. Jesus is the king of hearts. He has established his rule in the hearts of men. He changes society not by controlling institutions, but by transforming hearts one person at a time. The kingdom of God is strictly grassroots, no doubt about it. Jesus' goal is to salvage sinners, not save the system. Sociologist Will Durant once summed up the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of men. He said, Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. Christ wished to remake institutions and lessen laws by changing men. Well said. When Jesus does return to earth to establish his physical kingdom, he won't be missed. In verse 24 of chapter 17, we're told that the second coming will be as obvious as a lightning bolt. The return of Jesus will mean curtains for the world. Jesus will establish his kingdom by destroying the kingdoms of this earth. But before judgment comes down on the world, the church will go up to be with Jesus. Sodom is an example. God took Lot and his family out of Sodom before he rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom. And here's the point. God withholds his judgment until he removes his people. This is why Jesus tells us to be ready. Verse 32 says, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember this story? Mrs. Lot was offering an escape. But her heart was still in Sodom. That's what caused her to turn back for one last look at the things that she loved. And as a result, God turned her into a pillar of salt, a podium of sodium. <laughs> Guys, the rapture is intended to transport our bodies to heaven. But understand, our hearts are expected to already be there. Did you catch that? Our hearts are expected to already be there. You see, a heart fixated on this world's attractions may just keep a body down. Two people in one bed, two women grinding grain together, two folks in the same field. Suddenly, one will be taken. One will be snatched away. The other will be left behind. Don't you be left behind. The rapture is going to come before judgment comes down. The church will go up. We need to be rapture ready. In Luke chapter 18... Verses 1 through 5, a woman nags her way. Isn't that an amazing thing, a woman nagging? But a woman nags her way into a judge's court. The judge lends her an ear in order to get her off his back. But unlike the judge in the story, God hears the prayers of his people. He wants to hear them. And this is why he is also persuaded by persistent pleas on behalf of his people. Persistent, determined prayer is effective prayer. In verses 9 through 14, two men are praying in the temple. Another lesson on prayer. The Pharisee is a spiritual showboat. Notice he addresses his prayer to God, but verse 11 tells us that he's only talking with himself. Boy, I've heard some of those kinds of prayers. <laughs> he's only talking with himself. Rather than praying, he's tooting his own horn. 
This self-righteous snob looks down his nose at the broken heart of the tax collector next to him. That tax collector is admitting his sin. He's pleading for mercy. And Jesus makes it clear in the story that God hears the humble heart, not the holy hype. Remember that the next time you pray. Jesus had a special place in his heart for kids. For he saw in them attitudes that we need as children of God. Here's a list of childlike traits that we should emulate. Faith. Honesty. Sensitivity. A teachable heart. A healthy curiosity. A willingness and spontaneity. Jesus says in verse 16, of such is the kingdom of God. You see, this adult world can make us hard and cold and cynical. You know, even kids today, I think, are made to grow up too fast. In so many ways, we need to adopt the attitudes of a little child. As a Christian gets older, he or she needs to grow younger and younger at heart. The rich young ruler, he would have made a great elder or deacon in most churches. He had all the qualifications. Had good manners, good morals, a lot of money. And on top of all that, he was young. He was the rich, young ruler. But you see, there was one thing missing in this man. The man lacked a heart sold out for God. In chapter 18, verse 18, he calls Jesus good teacher. And in verse 19, the Lord picks up on the statement and he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. In essence, Jesus is saying, Look, when you call me good, are you really saying that I'm your God? And sadly, his answer was no. You see, like a doctor giving a physical examination, Jesus starts poking around in the man's life. And when he touches the man's money, he squeals. Ouch! You've hit me where it hurts. And in verse 22, Jesus tells him, Sell all that you have. And distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But check out verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Money was that man's God. If Jesus were to start poking around in your life, looking for stuff that you love more than him, what would he touch that would make you squeal? That would force you to say, ouch. In this ruler's wake, as he leaves, Jesus talks about the dangers of riches. He says it's easier for a camel to squeeze through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. But remember, it's a miracle when any sinner repents. (laughs) All things are possible with God. Here's the point. You can possess money. That's not a sin. Just as long as money doesn't possess you. That's when it becomes a God and robs Jesus of affections he deserves. Jesus reminds his disciples of his destination in the next few verses. He's headed to a gory death, but to also a glorious resurrection. And in route, he stops to heal a blind man. I love this story. The man hears that Jesus is nearby. He situates himself alongside the road and he begins to cry out. You see, he can't see. He doesn't see if he's coming. So he just starts screaming. Have mercy on me, son of David. The people around him are, you know, a little irritated. And so they tell him to shut up. Be quiet. But he won't be deterred. 
He might may be blind. He may not have any eyes or good eyes, but he's got a good set of lungs and he's going to use them. And he keeps screaming out at the top of his lungs, Son of David, have mercy on me. Nothing is going to stop him from reaching out to the Savior. And guess what? He soon discovers that nothing is going to stop the Savior from answering his request. Again, determination, persistence is a key to prayer. Luke 19 begins with the story of a short man with a long list of sins. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. He had worked his way up the IRS chain of command. He was a big wig. He was a little guy who had made it big. Zacchaeus had used his power in his position in addition to rip people off, to make himself rich. But in Luke 19, we find Zacchaeus up a tree, quite literally. Being a short man, there was no way that he could see over the crowd that was lining the street. He heard that Jesus was coming and he didn't want to miss an opportunity to see him. So Zacchaeus shimmies up a sycamore tree to get a better view. And that's when Jesus sees him. And he says to the tax collector, the chief tax collector in verse 5, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay in your house. You know, the Jews would have never invited themselves to a tax collector's house. But Jesus did. He loved people. He loved sinners. And the acceptance that Jesus showed Zacchaeus that day delivered him from his greed and deception. Zacchaeus got up from lunch with Jesus with a willing heart, with a desire to pay everybody back what he had defrauded plus interest. Boy, Zacchaeus had done power lunches before, but never this powerful. The love of Jesus had changed his life. It had caused him to love others. You know, the love of Jesus still allows little men to stand tall and prove their repentance in tangible ways. Hey, let me warn you. Don't spend your time with Jesus if you want to remain the same. He always changes those who spend time with him. We become part of God's kingdom by grace. But our position and our rank in God's kingdom will be determined by what we do with the grace that we've been given. The parable in chapter 19, verse 12, teaches us that when God bestows certain gifts upon us, he doesn't want them to be wasted. In this parable, the gifts are minas, which was a denomination of money. But whether it's money or time or talents or energy, God expects us to invest his gifts and turn a spiritual profit. If we do, God will reward us in his future kingdom. Whatever you do, the lesson from the parable is don't bury your talent. Don't hide your mina in a handkerchief. The only public demonstration that Jesus ever initiated on his own was his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. He descends the Mount of Olives on a donkey and the crowd begins to sing Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of chapter 19, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. The Jews had turned God's house, the temple, into a den of thieves. And as a result, this city will soon be judged. In chapter 20, theological trappers come seeking Jesus' pelt. They want to get him, and they want to get him good. Round one occurs in verse two. The Jews question Jesus' authority. 
See, they're trying to catch him in a spiritual snafu. They, they, they want to try to find something by which they can discredit him. And so in the beginning here, they question his authority. Jesus counters, though, their question with a question of his own. In verse 4, he says, The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Suddenly, Jesus turns the tables. You see, if the Jews say heaven, then everyone's going to say, well, then why didn't you follow John? If they say, well, John came from men, they're going to say, well, wait a minute. We thought he was a, a, a messenger from God. And the crowd who followed John would be mad. That's when the Jews quickly changed the subject. That's what they did. They just changed the subject. Have you ever changed the subject on Jesus? He's with dealing, you, dealing with you with a question and you just changed the subject. In round 2, verse 21, the Jews try to tie Jesus up with this topic of taxes. Should Rome be supported with coins that belong to God? They figure that Jesus will either come down on one side or the other. He'll either favor the Romans or he'll favor God. Choose one or the other. But instead, Jesus offends the Jews who ask the question. For God isn't nearly as concerned with money as they are. In essence, Jesus says, hey, go ahead and give Caesar his coins if you want to. But make sure that you give your life to God. That's what he's concerned about. In round 3, verse 27 a hypothetical wife outlives seven husbands. And the Jews want to know whose husband will she be in the kingdom age. It reminds me of the woman who thought that it was legal to have 16 husbands. She thought she could have 16 husbands at one time. She said, after all, in my first wedding, the pastor said, four better, four worse, four richer, four poor. That's 16. The question, though, these Jews pose is, is, wait a minute. If she was married to seven men, whose wife will she be in heaven? Jesus' answer is both brilliant and biblical. You see, human marriages end at death. It's a mute question. In heaven, we'll all be married to Jesus Christ. In the final round, verse 41, Jesus ends this sparring match with a knockout. He quotes the psalm. And he asks a question. Second Samuel chapter 7 had made it clear that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But in Psalm 110, King David calls the Messiah his Lord. Now, wait a minute. How can that be since the only one higher than the king is God? But that was the point where the Messiah was God. You see, the Jews saw him only in human terms as the son of David or the son of man. But Jesus shows that the Bible teaches Messiah's deity. Recognizing this truth would have been the first step in them embracing Jesus as God. But it wasn't a step they took. They missed it. The Jews didn't want to reason from, from Scripture anyway. Their minds were already made up. At this point, they stopped grilling Jesus. And they dwell on their plan of killing Jesus. Luke chapter 21 opens... With Jesus in the temple, watching the rich folks drop their offerings into the temple treasury. What a contrast between their enormous offerings and the two little pennies given by the poverty-stricken widow. You know, when we measure a gift, often we look at the amount you gave, whereas God always looks at the amount you kept. This woman kept nothing in behind. She gave all that she had. 
Too many people today, I think, are just tipping God. They're giving a little bit and holding back a lot. This widow, she offered a true sacrifice. She gave sacrificially. She gave even when it hurt. The Jews took pride in their beautiful temple. But Jesus foresees the day when this temple will be toppled. And not one stone, he says, shall be left upon another. It was in 70 A.D. when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and they fulfilled this prophecy of Jesus. But Jesus goes on to prophesy of the distant future and his ultimate return to earth. Luke chapter 21 charts the events that will occur as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus. False Christs, rumors of wars, persecution. Well, you're not there yet. World wars. These killer quakes in strange places, famines, pestilences. See that? You're getting closer. Jerusalem surrounded and under siege. Hey, you're almost there. Cosmic upheavals and signs in the heavens. You're on the brink. And verse 27 tells us, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. After the heavens are shaken, Jesus will return. Understand, God's timepiece in all this is not a Rolex nor a Timex. God's timepiece is the city of Jerusalem. Jesus makes an astounding statement about the holy city in verse 24 of chapter 21. He says, And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Roman invasion of 70 A.D. was the last time Jerusalem served as a Jewish capital until June the 10th, 1967. In Israel's Six-Day War, General Moshe Dayan and his Jewish paratroopers landed in the old city of Jerusalem and they took it from the Arabs. And for the first time in 1900 years, Jerusalem was out from under Gentile control. It marked, truly marked, the beginning of the end. You see, Jesus predicted that the times of the Gentiles would last until Jerusalem was no longer trampled by the Gentiles. When the times of the Gentiles are over, God is going to turn His focus back to Israel. His attention will center upon His people, the Hebrews. The end times almost had its official beginning in June of 1967. But... For some strange reason, Moshe Dayan gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslim authorities. Apparently to pacify Muslim concerns. He gave the holiest site of Judaism right back to them. And today it's under Arab control. Today the old city of Jerusalem is a part of Israel. It's politically governed by the Jews. But practically and religiously, Gentiles still trample the sacred ground of the Temple Mount. When will it all end? Perhaps any day now. Jesus is coming back soon. And when Jerusalem is liberated, it is a sign of the end. In fact, Jesus says in verse 29, When you see the fig tree blossom, you know that summer's near. Likewise, when you see all these things I've talked about beginning to come to pass, Realize that the end is at hand. That's why we're told in verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. You see, the Bible teaches that before God refocuses on Israel, He will first rapture His church. 
Jesus didn't say, when you see all these signs having already occurred. No, he says, but when these things begin to happen. When these judgments begin to come down, God is going to spare his church from the terrible judgments of the great tribulation. First Thessalonians chapter four tells us that Jesus will appear in the clouds and he'll snatch up his church. That's why there is no time for you and I to get absorbed in worldly pursuits. There's no time for us to get distracted by sin. Read verse 36. Jesus tells us, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus will provide us the escape. We need to be ready. In Luke chapter 22, Judas enters into a league with Satan. You know, it's shocking that Satan was able to weave his way into the inner circle of Jesus' friends. But Jesus was not surprised. Jesus was braced for betrayal. And don't you be surprised when Satan somehow manages to pop up among your friends. Often Satan will infiltrate our circle in order to agitate and irritate us. A buddy's betrayal is the enemy's most effective means of discouragement. It was for Jesus and it is for us. In verse 7, Jesus sends out his disciples to prepare for the Passover. He tells them to follow the man who's carrying the water jug. He'll lead you to a fully furnished room where you can make preparations for the Passover meal. Tradition says that this house belonged to John Mark. And it would not only be the site of the Passover, but interestingly, it would serve important purposes for weeks to come. After the crucifixion, the disciples used this same house as a hideout. After the resurrection, it turned into a headquarters. On the day of Pentecost, it became a launching pad. All from this upper room. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit cranks up in the book of Acts in the exact spot where Jesus partake of Passover and left off with his disciples. At this Passover, Jesus gave a 1,500-year-old tradition a makeover. He gave new meaning to the bread and wine. It now will represent my body and my blood, he tells us. Bible commentator J. Vernon McGee He made an interesting observation about communion. He said, The Lord used two of the most frail elements in the world as symbols of His body and blood. Bread and wine will both spoil in a few days. When He raised a monument, it was not made of brass or marble, but of two frail elements that perish. Isn't that interesting? It's just another example of how God uses the weak and the humble to do His work which is the lesson that the disciples really needed to grasp. Because in verse 24 of chapter 22, we're told, but there was great rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Can you believe it? Jesus is trying to celebrate his last supper with his disciples, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. Pretty clueless, you might say. Oh, I'm going to be the MVD, the most valuable disciple. No, I'm going to be MVD. No, I'm going to be MVD. Hey, Jesus says the world measures greatness by how many folks you can manipulate. But in the kingdom of God, the people that rise the highest are those who stoop the lowest to serve. It's not how many people you manipulate or control. What God cares about is how many people you serve. Those are the people who become greatest in God's kingdom. 
Jesus knew that Peter would fall, but he prayed that his faith would not fail after he had fallen. And this is important. It means that a fall is not a permanent failure if there is a faith to fall back on. Is your faith strong enough to trust God even when you fall? Jesus prayed for Peter. But it's interesting that Peter was too tired to return the favor. His eyelids closed from sleep, not prayer. Jesus was struggling in the garden, praying to his father while Peter snoozed. And Dr. Luke adds a detail that the other gospel writers leave out. Verse 44 tells us that as Jesus prayed, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You remember, because of his sin, Adam had to work by the sweat of his brow. Now in our redemption, Jesus pays the same penalty. In verse 47, Jesus is betrayed by a kiss, a kiss from Judas. And when the temple guards grab Jesus, one of the disciples, he pulls out his sword and he takes aim at the servant of the high priest. Man, he's going to try to split him right down the middle. He's going to try to hit him right on the top of his head when suddenly the old boy moves and he clips off his ear. In verse 51, Jesus works a miracle for a man that came to arrest him. Even to the very end, he's loving his enemies. He reaches down, he picks up the man's ear, his name was Malchus, puts it back on his head and heals him. Sadly, though, this is the miracle that Jesus has had to repeat over and over and over for 1900 years now. For all too often, his impulsive disciples, people like you and people like me, instead of loving our enemies, we go on the attack and we try to hurt people that Jesus meant to save. And Jesus has had to over and over heal the wounds inflicted by his own well-meaning disciples. This is perhaps his most common miracle. It's been repeated many times. Verse 54 tells us that as they led Jesus to the house of the high priest, Peter followed at a distance. Guys, that is a dangerous place for any disciple to be, following Jesus at a distance. Let me ask you tonight, how much distance have you allowed to get between you and Jesus? Verses 55 through 62 describe Peter's darkest hour. He does what he vowed he would never do. He denies his Lord and does it three times. The rooster crows. Peter has chickened out. But remember, it all started when Peter tried to follow the Lord from a distance. Can't do that. Not successfully. In verse 63, Jesus is beaten by the temple guards. In verse 66, he's tried before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. In verse 70, the Jewish leaders ask Jesus outright, Are you the Son of God? And Jesus answered clearly, you rightly say that I am. It was all these stubborn leaders needed to sentence Jesus to the death for blasphemy. You remember, they had grasped, they failed to grasp what Jesus had tried to explain to them earlier, that the Messiah would be both God and man. They saw him as only human. They denied his deity and therefore they rejected Jesus' claim as God. You know, often we'll hear liberals or we'll hear some cultist assert that Jesus never claimed to be God. You know, that's absolutely absurd. 
It's clear that Jesus claimed to be God, for that was the very reason that he was crucified. Though the Jews sentenced Jesus to death, they were unable to carry out the execution without help from the Romans. And so in Luke chapter 23, the Jews bring Jesus to Governor Pilate on some trumped-up charges for treason. Pilate's sense of Roman justice refused to allow him to condemn Jesus. But in order to please the Jews, he shipped him off to Herod. After all, Jesus was from Galilee. That's Herod's jurisdiction. He's Herod's problem. Give it to him. Typical politician. But neither could Herod pull the trigger, so he sent him back to Pilate. It was a custom at the time for the Roman governor to free one Jewish prisoner at the Passover. Pilate wanted to release Jesus. But instead, the Jewish leaders asked for the murderer named Barabbas. Again, Pilate offers to give them Jesus, but this time they begin to shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate orders the execution in order to pacify the Jews. But here's the question we all have to face. Who really was it that killed Jesus? Was it Pilate? Was it Herod? Was it the Jews? And yes, they were all accomplices. But when we search for the smoking gun in this murder case, we have to look a little deeper. Because it was my sin. And it was your sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. Who killed Jesus? I killed him. You killed him. And we can't pass the buck. On the cross, Jesus made seven statements. They're recorded in the Gospels. Luke records three of those statements. In verse 34, he tells us that as the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes, Jesus showed compassion on the very people who were crucifying him. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The soldiers didn't know that the safest bet was to trust in Jesus. In verse 43, one of the thieves crucified next to Jesus asks, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Unlike the other thief, this man was repentant. And Jesus rewards his faith with the answer, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus makes another statement from the cross in verse 46. Just before he breathes his last, he prays, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. As Jesus died, a miracle occurred. The veil in the temple that represented man's separation from God was suddenly torn in two. It was proof that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice, that our sins had been forgiven, that the way to God was now open. Fellowship with God was a possibility. At last, Jesus was given a hasty burial in a rich man's tomb as the disciples returned home to observe a restless day of rest. It's Friday. Oh, but Sunday's coming. Luke 23 ends at sundown, while Luke 24 begins three days later at sunrise. It was a dark moment when Jesus was crucified. But the sun will rise again. And on Sunday morning, the women who buried Jesus come back to the tomb to finish the job. And there they're met by an angel who asks them the question, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a good question. Why are you treating Jesus as if he were dead? Some Christians today are guilty of the same mistake. They go to church. They quote the creeds. They declare all the right doctrines. They claim to believe in the resurrection. All the while they are treating a man who is alive as if he were dead. Often people speak of the works of Jesus in past tense. Their knowledge of Jesus is limited to the pages of Scripture. They don't know the Lord personally in their lives. I've been to church services that were more a memorial to a dead man than an encounter with the risen Christ. Make sure you have experienced the reality of the resurrection. Make sure you're living your life in the presence of Jesus Christ, aware constantly that He's with you, that He wants to work in you, that He even wants to work through you. Jesus rose from an empty tomb to fill our empty hearts. Two discouraged disciples, they're heading home to Emmaus when they're joined by a stranger. The traveler is Jesus, but their eyes are closed to his identity. Imagine walking side by side with Jesus and not knowing who he is. And yet this is the experience again of many Christians. Jesus promises to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. But we don't always sense his presence. And why don't we? Jesus identifies our problem in verse 25. It's because we're slow of heart to believe. Guys, the one prerequisite for God opening our eyes to the awareness of Christ is simple faith. Do we look for Jesus? Do we trust Him to be there? Do we desire God to reveal Jesus to us? That's the one prerequisite that we believe with our hearts. And Jesus stirs up faith in these two disciples with Scripture. When faith fills their hearts, suddenly their eyes are open. Suddenly they know it's Jesus. And as soon as he's identified, he vanishes. And the disciples in the aftermath, they remark to each other how their hearts burned within them while they were with him. You know, Jesus is able to fire us up, fire up even the coldest heart. You see, this is always the aftermath, the residual, the fallout of having been in the presence of the risen Christ. A burning heart. When Jesus appears to the disciples in Jerusalem, he invites them to touch his hands and his feet. He even eats a piece of fish before them. You see, Jesus wants to prove to them conclusively that he is more than a spirit, that the body that died on the cross has literally been raised from the dead. In verse 44, he treats his disciples to a real Bible scan He takes them through the Old Testament and shows where it had predicted his death and resurrection in advance. Jesus also bestows on his disciples an important promise. He calls it the promise of the Father. It was the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, Moses had expressed the hope that one day the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all God's people. In a few days, Jesus is going to make Moses' hope a reality in the lives of his disciples. Guys, it takes the Holy Spirit to ignite the open flame of a burning heart. The outpouring of the Spirit rocked the world then, and it still rocks the world today. Luke chapter 24 closes with the ascension of Jesus to heaven. It was Augustine who wrote, You ascended before our eyes, 
And we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. I love that. This is why the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus had left in the clouds, but he had remained in their hearts. Does he live in your heart? Are you excited about living in the presence of the risen Christ? All you have to do is believe. Father, we thank you for tonight's study. We thank you for the good news of the gospel of Luke. Oh, this message of Jesus is good news. And the more we study him, the more we love him and want to serve him. And we pray these things. In his name, and everyone said,